welcome to the show. I am your host, Matt. This is my co-host, Attila. Hello there. Today we are talking all about one game. This is one of my favorite games from childhood, a game I love to return to at least once a year. It is called Shadowrun. There are multiple Shadowrun games out there, but this is the one for the Sega Genesis released early in the 90s. I think around 1993 or 1994. Um, now, just a quick breakdown. Shadowrun is a universe that has novels, a series of novels, and it's also a D&D, a paper game, um, like Dungeons & Dragons style, for those Tabletop. who don't know. Yeah. And the universe of Shadowrun is an interesting combination of futuristic cyberpunk set in the year 2050 around, but it is set in a time where magic has returned to the world. So you also have elves, dwarves, orcs, trolls, magic, dragons mixed in with this awesome cyberpunk Blade Runner style future. And I found that very fascinating as a kid. Obviously, I love the novels. I tried to play a bit of the D&D, but... Couldn't really figure it out and didn't have anyone to play, anybody to play with. But the video game really stood the test of time for me. And there were a couple of things I wanted to get into about it that were really, uh, really ahead of its time. For one, it had uh, some fantastic uh, real-time D&D combat, which used the uh, pen and paper rules of D&D, but it managed to do it all happening at once. It was it wasn't turn-based like many role-playing games at the time. So it was a top-down perspective with very large sprites. You went around to about uh, seven different sort of nodes that were towns, areas. Uh, and when you entered into combat, it just kept on going. You didn't go to another screen, and you would uh, you could use pistols, melee, a wide range of firearms, and magic. Is that a, is that a bit like Chrono Trigger in the way like a, a battle would just trigger and you just sort of like be there in the like in the space that you were already in? Almost like uh, more like Grand Theft Auto, or okay. just just or like just like a there's game. not even a battle system. It's just you are fighting in the space that you were in. It's not you're not locked into a specific place. Exactly, an enemy shows up. You can usually tell it's going to happen because you're you start going a little slower. You enter like combat speed, uh, and then you're you just f- choose to fire your gun, and then it. It does all that dice rolling in the background of whether mm-hmm. how skilled you are with the gun, how great their armor is. Uh, with the weapons, what was really nice about it was that they had weapon strength. So, say, shotguns could get through body armor, and then they also had damage. So an SMG wouldn't be great against body armor, but for clearing out animals, low-level thugs, um, ghouls, which were like zombies that this game also had. It, mm-hmm. it was a real grab bag of everything. Um, one of the great things about it was that uh, it had a, an unlimited amount of play because it had a, a mission generator. When So to get quests, you would go to these like five or six different, they were called Johnsons, and they were your quest givers, and they would pay you to do these missions. You were a bounty hunter of sorts, a mercenary guy. And because it was all text-based, they could just change a few things, a few of the spiels, but they could randomly generate the amount you're going to get paid based on your negotiation and charisma rates, based on your reputation. Um, And then they would just give you different areas that you would go to, and maybe it would be a package this time, maybe it would be extracting someone else from a building another time. Um, But that could really go on forever. Uh, There was a mainline story that was very interesting and was also... Uh, pretty mature for the for the time. I know that uh, games in the 16-bit era maybe were still felt more in that like kid realm, although I know that Sega Genesis was trying to go after more of a mature market and was definitely saying that compared to Super Nintendo, they were more for the adults. Um, but this this was, there was like murder and death. Um, you were avenging your brother's death. And I mean, the opening scene shows your brother, shows your characters finding out that your brother was murdered and sort of collapsing with his head into his hands. So it was... It wasn't um, whimsical 
in any way. Uh, most of the areas are like very dark and dingy and run down, although it's juxtaposed with super high end, very clean, but very sterile. Um, it was like a mall mixed with like a corporation. So it did a really good job of painting that universe. Um, I've been a fan of uh, Hairbrain Schemes and what they did with their recent reboots of Shadowrun, uh, Shadowrun Returns, Shadowrun Dragonfall in Hong Kong, but they still are so far removed from this more of like an open world I mean, it was an open world game with procedurally generated missions, and also it had random encounters. So much like a D&D game, I imagine, uh, you'd, you'd enter these situations that would occur maybe once an hour, maybe a couple times an hour, and they could be a man coming up to you running away from authorities, or a woman trying to escape from some men, or maybe the police coming up to you. And they would play out multiple different ways, and you had multiple reactions, and it was really impossible to know what was going on. Maybe the man running away from the authorities was escaped from a mental hospital. Maybe he was being taken to some place to have tests on him. So it was, it left a lot up to your judgment, and it also was very random in that way. And it really added a lot of, uh, a lot of life and character to the areas because it was on the Sega Genesis. It, it couldn't put up more than maybe one NPC on the screen, a couple of NPCs on the screen at a time in terms of like people walking around. So the cities looked a little bit lifeless. However, this sort of going on around, um, it's just it, it made you feel like you were part of a, a bigger world. It made the world feel alive. Like even if they couldn't physically populate the space, it made the world feel like it was lived in by real people. Absolutely. And, and I think text had a lot to do with that in terms of how much they could write uh, and how, how flexible they could be with it and how uh, it just really dove into like you felt like you were reading a book about it or you were playing a D&D game where they were painting these really illustrated situations and it had like really nice um uh like beautifully drawn graphical still images of the of the character and that really told a lot and and it just played into the universe of these like dense characters yeah i find that um that's one of the great things about the this shadow run game being based off of a, a book series based off a tabletop rpg series is that when you have something that's based off of a book that, that has then been adapted into a tabletop RPG where text is the main medium of those experiences, it means that once it's finally adapted into a video game, you're probably going to end up with a very strong uh, narrative experience in the game. And that's just, it's one of the things that not a lot of games have that much uh, focus built on the narrative. You know, a lot of games are just sort of um, mechanics first as a, sort of way of creating them. Um, a lot of the games that I make are just sort of based around a mechanic, not necessarily a story, um, or based around a, a series of mechanics. And then sometimes you might just, you know, the story might even be like a, a passing consideration where if this was a, a book or a novel first, then the, the story had to be compelling. It had to be interesting. And then when they brought the sort of tabletop experience to it, then they added... Um, they would have obviously had to keep a lot of that narrative in place while adding... Uh, sort of mechanical breakdown in between. And then by the time they finally brought it over to the, the game itself, it um, made it like faster paced, more interactive, I would imagine. Definitely. Yeah. Like, you know, I really hadn't thought of it until you mentioned that, that it's not just that there's a lot of dialogue and, but it's, it's that they're describing things to you, that they're describing you, you come across a guy in a booth and they'll have a, a nice picture of him, but they'll say something like the stench that emits from his, you know, disease ridden gums nearly bowls you over. And there's just little sentences like that everywhere that just paint every bar you enter into, um, 
has a whole paragraph, maybe three paragraphs of it. And on the odd chance you enter a bar, you might get caught up in a fight. And then it's just it's a random occurrence like that, just to show you like the danger of this world. And it's, it's not something I've seen in too many other games. I mean, even say like a Final Fantasy game, there's tons of dialogue, but they, there's never so much of this like narration of like the environment you're in as if you're almost playing blind. Yeah, I'd say that one of the only other games I can think of off the top of my head that had that little like kind of flavor text injection I should say one of the most recent games I can think of that had this example was uh, Undertale, um, where as you're fighting enemies throughout the experience, um, it'll periodically say things like, it smells like burnt sushi, or it smells like um, eye drops, or it's just like, it, it adds a bit of like, here's a good word, olfactory imagery to mm. the game. And it's just something that like, otherwise the experience is entirely devoid. There's no way that the developers can like simulate scent, you know, you, you can show the image of like an eye drop, but to tell the player, this is what the world, this is what you are smelling. This is what your character, player character is like smelling right now. It's just, it's a, it's an oddly unique kind of thing that can really only be done with text. And something that I hope they never really introduce. Oh God, no. I'd rather read, I'd rather read about festering flesh than ever actually smell it. I mean, Undertable is great too, because it wasn't just that it was describing it as a, as a sense of color and just to give you more imagination with it. It was that in case you were trying to defeat an enemy nonviolently, you would use those descriptors as clues. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like you're playing a bit of a puzzle or a bit of a Sherlock Holmes style. Yeah, that's a, it's a fantastic example of like these descriptors, you know, you, you never, if, if they, if it doesn't occur in isolation, you know, like there's a, there's a, a great like um, writing adage where it's like, every line of dialogue should accomplish at least two things should convey meaning and convey something about the character. But if you can do that with these, these kind of like um, flavor text bits where if you can convey um, something visceral about the game, um, be it uh, some kind of imagery and use it as a means to clue the player in on something, Mm -hmm. you've created like a a beautiful synthesis of those, uh, like make, making the most of that one line of dialogue, having it serve both a narrative function and a gameplay function. Yeah, exactly. A character that smells of rotting flesh is immediately going to tell you that they could be a bit dangerous. They could, this could be something wrong with you. Unless your character is a zombie, then you might think they're your friend. And then to take that initial perception and then maybe turn that around in a way that they maybe do something with their actions that is helpful, it could be um, a much deeper experience in the way that you're messing with people's perceptions on it. Um, one of the things... Uh, I, I urge people, if, if you can't, it's hard sometimes to go back to a, a game in, in the 16-bit era. Um, actually, I do find it easier to go back to, say, a Sega Genesis game than I do a PlayStation 1 game, mm-hmm. other than a few titles. We've, we've talked about that sort of, like, magical era of, like, 16-bit immortality versus, like, original 3D polygonal games being difficult in one of our previous uh, episodes. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that the 16-bit era was the masterpiece of what of one medium and then playstation was the work we're figuring out for the first time so um if yeah if anyone has a hankering for uh, a deep mature rpg especially if you're looking for something that's in the shadowrun universe if you've liked the original shadowrun the the new rebooted shadowrun games that have come out and if you haven't played those ones i highly recommend dragonfall first and then hong kong and shadowrun returns i think are definitely in second behind those ones. Um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunately it's only available on the Sega Genesis. There's countless groups that try to get together and recreate it, but 
those almost never really come to fruition. So I urge people to go back and check it out if you can, or if not, uh, Shadowrun Dragonfall on Steam. And uh, I just wanted to ask, like, before we wrap things up here, um, the thing that you like most about these games is the world, the gameplay. Like, is there anything in particular that really stands out? I'd I'd say it's a combination a combination of all of them. Just everything it, feels like. But a, but I'd say if I had to pick one, and I don't mind just picking one, even if it's a tough choice, Mom will save your life. Uh, is I'd probably say the universe of it. Mm-hmm. Def, the uni- yeah, because it it was such a fascinating thing. Because I wasn't so into fantasy as much when I was a kid. I I was drawn more to the sci fi ness of it, but to combine them in such a way was just uh, a really that was really fascinating for me. The ability to play as like a, a, a purely physical character that uses melee and shooting, and then can also augment their body with cybernetics, or to play as a magical character that has to stay completely away from that. It had a lot of depth in it. It actually had a matrix in it as well which was the internet mm-hmm. before the internet well i guess there was anyways it was the matrix and you mm-hmm. could go in and you could hack and it was an entirely separate world and it was handled very very well you could if say you were um performing a heist on a, on a certain corporate building if you brought a, a character that along that could do that they could jack into the security system you go into this entirely different interface where you're controlling a different looking um avatar and you can steal information, you can shut down electricity, cameras, alarms. It just, it felt like it really explored everything to the fullest in a way that was very fun to play, made a lot of sense. Um, and it was just a fully realized world. And then to have really fun, real-time combat that took into consideration, I think, was just a really nice package on it. And then to have basically an unlimited way to play it was uh, the same reason that I can still go back to it now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's another strength of games that are adapted from stories and then tabletop games. It's like a writer doesn't have any considerations of what is or is not possible within a game engine. So they'll just write the most compelling narrative that they can think of. And then when someone is creating this sort of tabletop interpretation of that, then they say, okay, how can we turn that into a mechanic? And again, because you're you're dealing with like a, a dungeon master typically, it's like a, a human player who is like serving as the person who is heading the experience you're also not necessarily limited by the same constraints as an actual game engine. So again, they feel like anything's possible. They can introduce all these like variety of mechanics like the hacking, like the different like class abilities and all these kind of things. And then it's you know, then it kind of falls to the game developers who are like, "Oh my god, we have all this stuff we need to put in. We have all these things that people are going to expect from this franchise." And the fact that they pulled it off, that's amazing. Um but I, I think that's uh the reason that a lot of that is in there in the first place is because they were kind of dealing with something of this massive scope, um, which was not limited by, you know, the, the, the thinking of like, well, do we have to put this in? And no, it's like, oh, well, no, in this case, you do kind of have to have it because people are going to expect it of the world. If you are going to go back and play it, when the title scroll rolls past, type A-B-B-A-C-A-B, press start. And there's going to be a new option below. It's a hidden option, but the arrow's going to go up by it. And you're going to need that because you can get experience, you can get money, you can get contacts. The one um, big detraction of the game is that if you actually intend to grind it out, it's an incredibly long slog to get uh, your attributes up and get enough money to really do anything. It can be fun. And if you can, if you can do it without cheating completely, it's more rewarding. But there are a, a few little cheats it gives you that just speed along the process. Pro tip from Matthew. Thanks for listening. We will be back with some more episodes every week.
If you want to uh, submit a question to be answered here on the show, you can do that on my website at bluishgreenproductions.com. You can also find my extended thoughts on every week's episode. Perhaps, uh, maybe even this time, you'll write the extended thoughts because you know a lot more about Shadowrun than I do. Um, but in general, yeah, if you just want to get in touch with us, submit a question, that can all be done on my website. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at bluishgreenpro. Matthew? I'm at GameThingTalk on Twitter, and you can email GameThingTalk at gmail.com with any comments or questions. And if it's interesting enough, it'll be read out on the show. Bye for now. Bye for now.